Hey boomers, this is Sonic the Comic the Podcast, your look back at the Sega-sational world of the 1990s and the United Kingdom's official Sega comic. We are your humes who think we're in charge, I am Chris McFeely. And I am Dave Bulmer, and this episode we are looking at, it's a big one, issue number 8, September the 4th, 1993. Now, look at this cover, Chris! Chris Toffer! This cover does not mess around, David. What we have here is... <laughs> Let's never call each other those again. No, that was weird. <laughs> what we have here is, to the layman, a really weird drawing of Sonic. Yes, um, it's, he's so brown. He's so brown, and instead of his, you know, normal set of spikes, he's just covered in loads of thin spikes with little sort of knobbly, what do I mean, texture bits on them. And uh, and he's not only is his skin brown where it ought to be blue, but also his um, you know muzzly areas that are usually a kind of a flesh tone are grey. It's a very strange looking fella, but this is all explained by the four arrows pointing to him that say, "What has happened to Sonic? Why is he so brown? Who turned him blue? How did he change?" Plus, Streets of Rage, Kid Chameleon. And Wonder Boy. It's straight to business, isn't it? The entire cover is just that. There's none of the usual text boxes or, or things to promise the contents of the just across the top. At last! The origin of Sonic. And then in the middle, all of this. And then at the bottom, and then this other stuff. <laughs> You're right. I never noticed that before. Yeah, there's usually all sorts of boxes and tags and captions and things. And this really just shows you this big picture. And it's a, it's a bold move. They have put a character on the cover... That essentially, to modern eyes, looks more like Ray the Flying Squirrel than Sonic, but of course he didn't exist at the time. Yeah, yeah. And doesn't really explain it except to say it will explain it. The origin of Sonic. It's even lacking in the usual little box that says, Featuring Sonic the Hedgehog. And, you know, of course, with the text here, as long as you actually stop and read it, they do explain that this is going to be Sonic before he was Sonic, but if you don't read it, and you just see this in the in the shop, it's a very strange cover, so bold move for them to do. And really, this issue in many ways, and we've said this about lots of the previous issues, but I'm going to say it again, represents the comic finding some sort of footing and declaring itself a real comic. Absolutely. But before we get to the Sonic strip, we do have to get through the... Control Zone. Although, actually, just before we open it up, of course, we're likely aren't we, to flip it over and see what's on the back. And what's on the back today is this advert for Zed Knights. Oh, I remember that. Yes. Wow, that's a, that's an, a weird flash. I can safely say I haven't thought about that in decades, but just seeing seeing the ad on the back there, it was... Well, I have, because uh, my wife recently got into uh, making those Gundam models, and uh, mm. we had one Zed Knight, and it, it was that. It was a, you, it was a kit uh, model. Of a thing which, yes, at the yes. time, I thought because it I, because it was from Tomy and because it started with a Z, I, I thought it was like an advancement of their Z bots line, which was essentially little you know monster in a pocket style robots that you could collect. And I looked. Oh, up. I would have equated it more with Zoids. Oh, right. Yes. And actually, I feel like I heard that they were in fact something to do with Zoids. Oh, there we go then. The text says the ultimate computer battle warriors Z knights. It's a set of toy plastic knight looking fellas, fully articulated, battery driven battle robots that 
that actually walk from Tomy, uh, but they've chosen to go with a short comic strip to advertise it of the sort that you might find on the back of a box of a toy. And what happens in it is there's a Zed Knight in the middle of a fight and he says, I've perfected window travel. We're exiting this pewterscape and gate crashing the real world. Virus Knights, fall back. And then it goes, meanwhile, and there's a teenage boy and his computer says on his screen to upgrade reality, press Zed. And he thinks, bit of a weird option. He presses Z, the computer all glows up, and immediately he's zapped into some kind of nether realm, and it says, next, Z for danger. So, there we go, a comic within a comic advertising toys. <laughs> Again, the um, presence of virtual reality in the zeitgeist mm-hmm. of the 90s on, on display That's there. right, the, we haven't yet had the uh, VR troopers on TV, but they'll be in development. Well, what have we got in the control zone this week? Um, ah, yeah. On the welcome screen, they're telling us that uh, if we get our letters printed from now on, they've they've run out of Sonic badges. They don't say as much, but but they have. At least they don't say as much on this page. So instead, they have now got the Sonic Water Fun Game. Yes! Yes. Oh, this is what I remember as the prize. A long-running and quite iconic prize. It's one of those Tomy things. Uh, again, Tomy. Um, where... You've got a sort of a, a canister full of water, a, pl- a plastic aquarium of water yeah. with little plastic rings in it and a big button. And when you press the button, it, it just pumps air up into the thing, which makes the, the rings all shoot around and you and your little sonic figure, uh, well, not figure, it's like a little drawing cut out, kind mm. of gets pumped up with them and, and presumably the aim is to catch the rings with him. Did you ever have this? Yeah, I think there was... Oh, uh, well, I don't know if I had this, but certainly I would have had games like it. You know, I might have even had the, this This now that I think about it. Yeah, because it was just a ring toss, really. Yeah. I don't think you caught it on the Sonic figure. I think it was, oh. you know, like ring toss spikes in the right, tube. Right, right. I think that, I think that was how it worked. I yes. The picture on the uh, on the letters page is not large enough to get a close look. It's so not, and also, but, but what we can get from it is that... Uh, the sense that the Sonic is probably too big to really move around inside there. So yeah, it probably was just a ring toss game. Megadroid is also offering his apologies for what I called him out on <laughs> a year or two ago. The fact that the high score zone did not appear as promised in the previous That's issue. Right. He swears it will come, but it never do. It Really, it never happened. It ne- not, not that I can remember. I will be happy to be proven wrong, <laughs> but I've been right so far. And if we are proven wrong, we're going to have to like really knuckle down and read the side scores aren't we um probably yeah and send out feelers and get the winners to get in contact oh that'd be lovely yeah but yes he's <laughs> he's he's delivering yet more promises about the imminence of this high score zone that none of us remember or would have cared about <laughs> if it had ever come to be and also he says that next issue we're going to be hearing about the next new series that we have on the launch pad because wonder boy will be ending next issue <laughs> there's a section right in the middle here called Cool Woolies. Now, now, here's a flashback for you. <laughs> it opens on a wonderful proclamation. Woolworths in Long Eaton, Nottinghamshire is a pretty cool place. <laughs> okay. Now, I think our American listeners still have Woolworths, is yes, that right? Yes, I've never been entirely clear if the American Woolworths is the same thing as our Woolworths, honestly. I believe it is, but I think it occupies a different cultural position. So, mm. just to clarify, Woolworths, in our world, here in the UK, was the shop that every town had back when that was... And you, you know, now every town has all the same shops and you can reliably find all the same stuff wherever you go. But back then, Woolworths was the one thing you could rely on to be in nearly any town you ever visited in the UK. And it was something of 
a first stop on any age about 9 to 15 sort yeah. of age uh-huh. trip to town with your friends. Right. You would go straight to Woolworths, you'd pick up some, you know, mini cans of Coke, you'd browse the singles, maybe the videos. It's that sort of shop. And get some pick and mix, dear. Get the pick and mix. Yeah, why on earth did I forget the pick and mix? For some reason, I it, don't know. For some reason, it never occurred to me to browse the pick and mix. I don't know. Maybe. It- well, you don't browse the pick and mix. <laughs> Okay, okay. <laughs> Good point. You're right. But <laughs> I think I had it drummed into me that... I don't remember having this drummed into me. Maybe it was just a piece of subtle parenting that worked just beyond yeah. well. But I never really thought of sweets as something I bought for myself beyond oh. beyond a packet of chewing gum or, or hubba bubba. Oh, I mean, see, that's funny because I was the complete opposite because my parents didn't want me eating gum. Hmm. I was under the impression that my parents, and indeed parents in general, didn't want children in general eating uh, gum. And I just remember, I remember exactly where I was. I was at Morrison's one day with my with my mum, and I, I just broached the subject of whether or not I'd be allowed some bubble gum. And she went, yeah. And I was like, what? All this no! time? <laughs> I could have had gum? And, oh... Chris, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. If, if you made it through the entire time that Hubba Bubba were putting out their original strawberry and blueberry flavours and didn't try them, then I'm afraid you did miss one of the better flavours that existed in the world and no longer does. Two of. I did actually get into gum ah. as time. You know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had totally. It's a sonic memory. Yep. I can remember going up to the corner shop to get the newest issue of Sonic and getting a pack of Hubba Bubba. Oh. That became kind of a thing that I would do sometimes. Gosh, I wonder if that's when I got mine as well, because I can't remember now. I just remember I had them. I remember I had them at primary school. I would have them stashed away in my pocket and I would sneak a, a bubble gum in, walk around on the playground chewing this delicious bring it back hubba bubba what are you doing (laughs) the strawberry flavor was one of the most wonderful concoctions mankind's ever made not only was it so delicious that i can remember it as if it's in my mouth now which is the only reason why i'm not storming wherever the offices of hubba bubba are with some form of pitchfork or water cannon as we speak but it you would you would chew it and it would suddenly blossom into this soft fluffy wondrous cloud of beauty and then very quickly turn into a small nugget Uh, of rock hard rubber but still you're really you're really painting a taste picture with your mouth words (laughs) (laughs) thank you that's i aim to please question mark Uh, i don't know why i said it that slowly as if i was trying to find a better thing to say than please at the end of the sentence So anyway, in Woolworths. Oh, yeah, 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 Woolworths. <laughs> so that, yeah, that, that was the kind of shop Woolworths was, and they had a what we I don't know if Americans would call them a a fun day. Oh, but and, that's what we and would comics. Call them over here. You could buy STC in oh, Woolworths. Buy, yes, yes, yes. You could indeed, absolutely. <laughs> Bit of it. I don't know what kind. I don't know what you would describe Woolworths as in, no. in a. If you wanted to use a word to describe the kind of shop it was, it sold toys, clothes, comics, DVDs, yeah. uh, not DVDs, pardon me. No, no, no. Uh, video it did eventually, figures. but not in 1993. Oh, yeah, eventually. And it left this world behind, gosh, 10, oh, man. 11, 12 years ago now. Yeah, yeah. And and it was one of those situations, uh, you know, which now, of course, we face every other day, where mm. a big shop that you absolutely recognize goes under and you go... Oh no! And then you can't really justify wanting to go there anymore because it wasn't you. Everything you could get there, you can get more conveniently already. It really was just there was something about it being a. It, it was like the respawn point of town. It was the the, the yeah, central hub. Yeah. yeah, absolute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Goodness knows what kids do now. I think they just smoke now. 
So that, that's Woolworths. The long-eaten Nottinghamshire Woolworths had Sonic and Tails costume characters collecting money. That's the entire story. Um, <laughs> that's it, yeah. Also, there was a Mega CD there set up that anybody could ever go on for 30p in a roulette to win a car. For 30p a go. So, yeah, that was it. 30p a go. And they raised the, uh, the stonking sum. <laughs> Two hundred pounds for Bernardo's, That's, which is a charity. American listeners, y- yeah. Two hundred pounds, jeez. The Long Eaton Nottinghamshire crew were not representing. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, even back then. I mean, this is nineteen ninety three money, so perhaps. But it does seem a little bit dismal to even report on, doesn't it? Two hundred quid. It, uh, yeah, yeah. But I suppose if you, when you were eleven, two hundred pound was an. In, unimaginable amount. That's true. Uh, Bernardo's is a children's charity, so the the, mm. the children have. I don't know, benefited to the tune of, well, nothing. And the other news story on the Control Zone is that the first issue of Sonic the Comic has sold out, so you can't get it no more. Yeah, that's right. And also that they're going to open a back-issue service. Um, So, except for issue one, which they've completely sold out of and will not print anymore, you can write in and essentially scavenge from the uh, the leftover stock that they happen to have, uh, which presumably, well, it won't be leftover, it'll be returns, it'll be unsold copies. Or just warehoused stuff, maybe, I don't know. I figure they always keep a few behind for exactly this sort of situation. Well, maybe. When I read this, my first response was, well... If there's so much demand for the first issue that they have to say it's sold out and, you you know, you can stop writing to us, please. Why not print it again? This, of course, was my first thought. But then, I don't know, the, the bit of me that's aware that practicalities exist started yeah. to think, well, the setup probably means there's such a thing as a minimum print run. And if you're not actually distributing it for sale, then yeah. it's too prohibitively costly to print anything. Uh, only other item of note I spot on the control zone here is with the entry of Night Trap and Final Fight at numbers one and two, oh. the Mega CD chart now has... We're up to the full 10. We've been waiting for this moment and how fitting that it would be on the issue that essentially stands as the first real landmark milestone issue of Sonic the Comic. That there would be 10 whole mega... Well, I suppose there are 11, aren't they? Because last issue there were nine on the chart. And there are two new ones here, so That's there are now more Mega CD games true. than there are spots on the chart. Ah, wow, it's really going from going up in leaps and bounds, isn't it? The Mega CD. What a bright future it has ahead of it. Yeah, but number one is Night Trap. <laughs> well, and thanks to the efforts of STC to uh, mend its reputation. Yeah, that's true. Yes, they did, didn't they? <laughs> Sonic. Sonic. Oh wait, one more thing. One more thing in the control zone. Unless we've missed her name before, we have a new contributor uh, in the credits panel, bottom left of the Control Zone page. The editor, Richard Burton, is now joined by an assistant editor, Deborah Tate, who will be responsible for years. Probably, what, the majority of Sonic the Comic that ever existed? You know, I genuinely don't know. Of all the credits and all the things I paid attention to (laughs) in Sonic the Comic, I never paid attention to the editorial box. I don't know how long Deborah Tate was on the comic. I think she was the editor from the moment Richard Burton leaves to the moment Andy Diggle comes in, which is five minutes before the end. Yeah, so I'm raising a glass, I'm raising a mug of tea to Deborah Tate, who's going to be Sonic the Comic for the majority of the time we have Sonic the Comic but she's not yet the full-on editor. Gosh, I'd like to chat to her someday. Huh? Where am I? Well, well. Look who's dropped in. Erinaceus Europaeus. Hey, watch who you're calling names, pal. You're talking to Sonic, the fastest hedgehog on the planet Mobius. Oh. (laughs) Fastest, eh? Hmm. And so, 
we have reached the origin of Sonic. That's not just my description, that is the name of the episode. Written by Nigel Kitching, art by Richard Elson, letters by Elita Fell. Sonic brings Tails, Johnny Lightfoot and Porker Lewis into the special zone to meet his old friend, the omnipotent Omni-Viewer, who shares with them the story of Sonic's origin. How an ordinary brown hedgehog became the coolest, fastest, bluest dude on Mobius and a kindly scientist named Dr. Ovi Kinterbor became the evil Dr. Ivo Robotnik. However, unbeknownst to our heroes, the Omni-Viewer has been enslaved by Robotnik and at his command, captures Sonic and Co and hurls them into the future. Dun dun dun! What a thick, meaty fistful of story that is. It is, and believe me, that's our usual opening synopsis, but we gotta dive a bit deeper into this as we go. <laughs> yeah, we have. We have deliberately withheld the, the main juice that this, that this meat contains. It's extra rare, it's got a pool of juice in the middle <laughs> and we <laughs> and we've left it for a surprise when you take your first big bite which we're about to do now i've made it sound unappetizing but it's not it's delicious as connoisseurs know no, i'm a well done man myself <laughs> I, let's change the metaphor it's a jam it's a jam donut chris it's no, a jam we donut go. now we're cooking <laughs> We've, we can see the lovely donutty outside, but unbeknownst to us, because it's been very cleverly folded over, so there's not even a little, a little belly button of jam poking out the end. You don't know, so you're about to bite into it and find the pocket of jam in the middle, and it's gonna be delicious. Is this episode doing well so far? Do you think? <laughs> the language at play. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's hard. To, we don't want to just go through this page by page or anything, but it is I don't know. I do. To, you know what I'm like. Where to st- you've seen my I, I know you've it. seen my seven hours of Frozen podcast. <laughs> hey, I, there's page one, panel one. You know, oh. we've got Porker Lewis returning from issue one, That's right? And Johnny Lightfoot making his debut in Sonic. And they're both introduced uh, with their full names. Like it's very important we know who they are. Tails says, "Not yet, Johnny Lightfoot. Be patient." Porker Lewis, are you okay? Porker Lewis was an odd one where mm. you did sort of tend to find that a lot of people referred to him with his. <laughs> full name uh, anyway that's true uh, as if it wasn't a first name surname situation you know i have a theory as to why this is done though oh, so we know who they are really Just, it's like if this was an american comic these would be printed in bold <laughs> that's true and we haven't really really spent much time you know most appearances of johnny lightfoot have been speculative up till now we've had porker before yeah i mean this is his first real named appearance otherwise it's just been the rabbit yeah we had porker and these are the guys who would become uh, barring the addition of future new characters from the games who would become the core cast of sonic the well that's right we don't know it yet and in this first panel you know we establish nigel is a good writer you guys and so yeah right in there with the porker being nervous about uh, about going through the star and johnny being eager so we've got two characters set up and that you know those those characters are consistent throughout the series even after they start putting clothes on (laughs) yeah but i have a theory as to why this might have been done with the names um because i think they might have been wondering at the time apparently as they face demand for back issues that are selling out whether this might end up serving as the introduction to some sort of trade paperback collection down the line um it didn't and that's frankly ridiculous but if you can imagine yeah. opening a book and finding this as the first page this would serve brilliantly as your introduction to the comic series because these characters introduce themselves straight away all the concepts are laid out in front of us we get the origin of sonic and then we get a a story can commence i mean it it is also our 
but for the most part, it is the comics introduction to the characters anyway. Yes. So I think it's just done because it's the first real use of the characters, more than with any greater plan for the uh, for, for the future. You're right there, but the reason that I speculate at all is that this is the first time they've felt the need to do this. We've had several times recently where the pair of us have gone, and of course we know that from Stay Sonic. True, actually, yes. You know, whereas here, really for the first time, they're assuming we haven't read Stay Sonic and are giving us the information that that book did. It's something that would have played well as a first issue, uh, barring where the story winds up going. Oh yes, I see what you mean by that. Yes, actually, that does throw a spanner in the works of my theory. Yeah, you you wouldn't do that. No, no, no. Out of the gate for your first issue, but uh, I mean, and then this follows on from stuff uh, that Nigel seeded in his very first issue back in number four, where he introduced the idea of the star posts and the way that they were used to access the special zone. Star posts being from Sonic 2, of course, as Mm -hmm. we talked about back then. And uh, besides this introduction to Johnny and Porker, we start out with a very familiar sort of approach to a Sonic story in Sonic the Comic, where Sonic charges up the star post, like you see in the Mm -hmm. game. The ring of stars appears around the top, like you see in the game. Mm -hmm. Everybody jumps through. Then they're in the tube from Sonic 2. Then there are the bombs. And Sonic talks about how the Chaos Emeralds used to be. It's another running the zone type of situation, which we've seen in so many previous issues. But in this case, it lasts half a page before we... Well, and there's also, there's an extra treat as well, which is this real sense that I felt then, but feel now as well, of the special zone being this secret place that you only get to see if you're in the know, if you're one of Sonic's Mm. best pals. He's taking his friends there, and it does feel like they and we with them are being let in on some sort of deep secret stuff here. It's exciting. Yes, definitely. Abby wanted to point out how big they made the star posts here. Mm, Yeah. It's very tall. Sonic, they all have to, like, whip right up into the air using Sonic's speed to get there. It towers above them, and it, and it really gives them this sense of... There's there's always been something otherworldly about star posts, and I think in Sonic 2, when... Maybe I'm just saying this because I know STC, but there was something about the star posts, as opposed to just the lamp posts from the first game, that felt like something from another world. Why are they here? Who put them here? Is this something that Kinterbor set up? along with those PC monitors everywhere. You know, what is this? Is it just something from another planet? And it making them tall? I don't know, somehow just adds to that, I think. I can't say I ever felt the same way about them, but I can see what you mean. There's something um, monolithic about mm, them. Something mm. about 2001, where did yeah. they... I mean, because we, 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 there never, as far as I know, would ever be an explanation for where they had come from exactly or how they had wound up here. But that's so. not the only thing in this issue that will never... It's one of several things in this issue, in fact, that we'll never actually explain an origin for. (laughs) Uh, The the very next thing, in fact, being, here he is, the Omniviewer. Oh, look at him as well. I mean... I I was absolutely blown away by this panel when I read this story originally. Oh, God, yeah. So, listeners, we've zoomed through the special zone with some great artwork from Richard Elson. Again, there's a... In panel two in particular, there's a great pose for Sonic, which really kind of... I don't know, concentrates on the fact that Richard's figured out how his shapes work. <laughs> yeah. And then we find the Omniviewer, and, and picture this. Imagine in wild space that's just full of if you've seen the intro to um if you've seen the intro to Sonic Mania, actually, it's like a proto version of that yeah, run yeah. through a Jack Kirby filter. Um yep. I think I think there was a, a, an equivalent thing that Jack Kirby used to draw, but I'm not a big enough Marvel fan to know what. But it's strange shapes and odd 
things and sights everywhere and in the midst of it is this big square with rounded edges or rectangle rather like a like a widescreen tv exploding at the edges with sort of static lightning and on the screen is this giant face picked out in zigzags and lightning shapes it's not just like a guy looking through the screen it's like lightning has formed a shape of a face and it's ferocious and it's crackling with power and it's grinding its teeth and Oh, it's great! <laughs> and the uh, don't forget the uh, this wonderful watercolor effect on the screen as well. Because yes. now we've said we've said before, but Sonic the comic is at this point still a fully painted comic. Yes. And in this particular, with this particular character, they really lean into the uh, the watercolor blurry effect. So he's not all one color. He is he's greens and blues and reds and yellows. I was just I was like, <laughs> Whoa, yeah. And he appears with this snarling visage. Who dares face the omnipotent omnipotent? Viewer. And then Sonic's like, cool, but it's me. Hey, what's up, man? Long time no see. Yes, baby, long time. He has this. I don't think he would ever talk like that again, would he, the Omni Viewer? The thing is, you see what you want to see and you hear what you want to hear. Dig. No, this is a. It would be a very long time before we would see the Omni Viewer again. I mm. want to say over fifty issues, oh, or something close, something close to fifty issues before the Omni Viewer would ever appear again outside of this two-part story. Wow! But um, this is some something of a prototypical version of the character uh, for whom there would never be an origin story supplied. No. Um, he just is. He's just a denizen of the special zone. He's just an amazing thing in space. We're never given any indication of if he's someone who was trapped in something if he is a living screen because there's a race of them nothing yep he's just a thing and he's got the power to pierce the veil of space and time it's just a piece of wonderful imagination and and we can see why it's born of necessity because nigel is using this as a device because in a moment he's going to show the characters and the readers the origin of sonic as a short film on this screen peering back through time and so that's why we needed a screen but to turn that into a living person instead of sonic he could have had sonic go i'm gonna tell you the story of my origin friends or te- he could have had tails go how come you're blue by the way and he just tells him a story no yeah. instead we get this exciting run through the the magical space that is the special zone we get this character that is this blazing screen with a fury face on it it's amazing this is a great comic sonic wants the omni viewer to show them the story of how he got his powers and where dr robotnik came from and everything and this is the meat of the story so for the american readers who have never read this story before we'll summarize it quickly and then get into the meat of it now this story was derived from a document that Sega wrote while they were trying to conceive a sort of uh, Western backstory uh, early in, in the production of Sonic for the Western world outside of Japan. It was really only in America, it was only ever used as part of a promotional comic with various other comics and cartoons devising their own backstory. But in the United Kingdom, we've talked about the book Stay Sonic multiple times in this podcast already. Stay Sonic would just simply reproduce parts of the Bible, honestly. It would put its own flourish on it, but large parts of the text in the book Stay Sonic were just reproduced almost directly from uh, the Bible, which told the story of how Sonic was once an ordinary brown hedgehog who accidentally one day burrowed his way into the secret underground lab of Dr. O.V. Kintabor, a kindly scientist who was trying to erase all negative emotion from Mobius. I see you noticed the ROCC. Huh? The Retro Orbital Chaos Compressor. By using the golden rings of Mobius, I have been able to transfer most of the planet's evil into these six emeralds. 
My mission is to rid planet Mobius of evil forever! Unfortunately, I've been unable to find the seventh emerald. Without this, the ROCC is <laughs> terribly unstable. Sonic and Kintabor became friends, and Kintabor helped Sonic increase his speed. Your progress so far has been remarkable, but when it comes to searching for the Grey Emerald, the faster the better. Today we'll try out these friction-reducing trainers. I call them the Power Sneakers. Ready when you are, Dr. K. Hey, Doc, these Power Sneakers are real cool. Stop! The gyratosphere can't take any more! Sonic! Sonic's sneakers had allowed him to cross all known limits of mammalian acceleration and actually break the sound barrier, which fused his quills together with the shockwave and turned him blue, transforming him into the iconic version of the character that we know today. But Sonic wasn't the only character transformed in the course of this origin story. I feel a bit peckish. How about you, Sonic? Great! I'll have a triple cheeseburger with salami salad, pickles, mayonnaise, and mustard. Oh, dear. I must have forgotten to do the shopping again. Oh, oh, that egg stinks. How long has it been in there? Only about six months or so. A little salted. It should be fine. Doc, watch it! Ah! Sonic! Doc! Doc, are you alright? Don't worry about me, Sonic. In fact, I've never felt better. Dr. Ivo Robotnik? <laughs> exactly! <laughs> accident with the retroorbital chaos compressor and a rotten egg wound up bathing Kintabor in the radiation that he had collected in these chaos emeralds, transforming him into the very egg-like Dr. Ivo Robotnik. And that was how we, in the United Kingdom, understood and accepted that things just were. Absolutely. That is the origin of Sonic. Everything backed it up. Yep. All, all the other media backed it up. But they didn't all tell the story quite the same way. No. And that, that's where the little details become interesting in this story. Because this story, it's not a direct adaptation of the version that's in Stay Sonic. Um, nor is the version that's in Stay Sonic a direct adaptation of the version that's in the original Sonic Bible or the original Sonic promotional comic. Mm -hmm. There are various little differences here and there. But I think it is obvious that they had Stay Sonic directly to reference. Absolutely. Because they there did. are there are many little touches. Well, there's there are even direct quotes. There's a bit on page five where, where Sonic orders an elaborate cheeseburger and yes. it is word for word a quote from Stay Sonic. Exactly. And the, the comic book that he's reading in that panel, Attack of the Killer Zombie Penguins, is also right out of Stay Sonic. <laughs> oh yes. Uh, as is the Idiot's Guide to Quantum 
quantum physics that he's looking <laughs> at there on page three. These are the little touches. But at the same time, I think they also might have had the promotional comic to, oh. to reference because the design of the ROCC mm. is very similar to the right. um, to that because it's described in Stasonic as being made up of gold rings and when it explodes and bathes Kentivore in the radiation that's the explosion that hurls the rings all over the planet thereby explaining why there are rings all over the planet yes but then on the other hand Sonic the comic spins it the other way and this is like one of one of its first like unique twists on the idea is that the rings were actually native to Mobius and Kintibor had harnessed and used them to make the ROCC rather than is that did the, that come from STC Gosh. Uh, so far as I know, because it's, you know, it doesn't say anything about the origins of the rings and stay sonic. No, it's like a, it's all just in my in my head. You and wouldn't a bit of a need mesh. an explanation for why the rings were scattered all over the planet if the rings were native to the planet. Good point. Oh, that's right. Yes, of course, because it was initially that they got sort of turned a bit magical by proximity to the Chaos Emeralds in Stay Sonic, isn't it? Whereas yes, they, they offered protection. A lot of love and affection. Yes. Is it in Stay Sonic where it describes the rings as a sort of giant heat sink, or is that in Fourth Dimension? No, that doesn't sound familiar. It must be in Fourth Dimension then, because it's where I learned the word heat sink. <laughs> oh, well, I don't, don't ring a well. <laughs> I should reread Fourth Dimension. I should oh, get yes. Fourth Dimension and reread Let's fourth do that. Dimension. Patreon bonus episode. Uh, yeah, and, and another little difference is the fact that Kintobor makes Sonic's power sneakers and it is them that he uses to break the sound barrier. Whereas in the promotional comic, it's not till after Sonic breaks the sound barrier that Kintobor makes the power sneakers as replacements for the sneakers he's burned up. Oh, yeah. oh no, I'm pretty sure in Stay Sonic he's got the sneakers already, but then I can't remember. And then one of the other big differences, uh, not just between Sonic the comic and, say, Stay Sonic, but one of the key points of divergence on virtually every telling of the origin story, regardless of what iteration of the Bible or piece of media it was, is the precise circumstances of how Kintivor becomes Robotnik. Mm. Common to all of them is that he fancies a bit of lunch, but it turns out he's forgotten to get the shopping in, so all he's got in his fridge is a single rotten egg. That's very important canon. That's Th that, very... Yes. That goes across all different iterations and alternate dimensions of this story. He forgot the shopping. <laughs> now, in the Sonic the Comic version of the story, he's walking back towards the ROCC and trips on a cable and falls yeah. over and his hand slams into the control panel and that's what causes the explosion. In the Stay Sonic version, he's simply distracted looking at the egg while he types commands into it mm. and miskeys something. Far uh, less dramatic. Nigel's version's much better. Yeah. In the promotional comic, he has both an egg and a bottle of soda, which he accidentally spills on the control panel, which causes the explosion. And in at least one iteration of the Bible, um, a, a hole in the ozone layer suddenly opens and lets in a burst of solar radiation. <laughs> Yes, yeah, <laughs> that goes flooding through the... And that one that one makes more sense. If you were writing the movie version of this, I think you'd go with that one because the theme here is that Kintobor is trying to rid the world of, among you know various things, evil, but also pollution, all in one go. Uh, you know, I never looked at it with the pollution, but I think it's a little too happenstancey for me. I prefer well, it is, but that's, human that's why you would than... Uh... That's why you would have to establish it as an emergency situation. We are on the 
edge yeah. of the climate catastrophe. He is there, you know, trying to fix this with this underground, literally and metaphorically, laboratory situation where he's doing this thing that might save us all, and then it's too late. The radiation gets in, it touches the emeralds, everything goes off. But yes, failing that, and without that, certainly the tripping over the cable is the, the, the more interesting angle, because my interpretation was always that the hand that smashes into the keyboard was the one carrying the egg, and he's sort of smashed it into it. That was what I always thought. No, he's holding it in his left hand and it's his Yes, right as hand I look at it now, that's definitely, yeah, not the yeah, case. But the case, I used to like that because it means, in my head, the egg yolk got in and that's why the explosion, rather than just... Yeah, that the radiation came out through the egg, up through <laughs> yeah, his hand into the... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that's the origin of Sonic and Dr. Robotnik as we in the United Kingdom understood it to be true and, and correct forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. So, I've got a few things to say about the presentation of this. Mm. I mean, and, and of course, we've got to talk about the two significant character designs yes. here. Lesser of the two, surprisingly, is Sonic himself. It, it, there's not much to it. It's just Sonic, but brown. and with. Did you notice the gaff? Here, by missing the way. his ear. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he's missing his ear in the first panel. In the very first panel. You can see why, because one of the spikes kind of fills the role of the ear. But in the very next panel, it's all sorted yeah, out. There it is. It's um, all good. Th- this is a man who learns fast, I think. And, and you know, as proven by how great he is at drawing Sonic by this time. Yep. The pose of Sonic after, like, the first appearance in the flashback story of Blue Sonic is so good. It's still now, looking at it, I can see nothing to improve upon. He's nailed it already, and yet somehow would only continue to improve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> However that works. I I was always a big fan of his design for Dr. Kintibor. And here we go. This is the this is the main design worth mentioning here. His Kintibor is fantastic. Now, obviously, we had the idea of Dr. Kintibor introduced in issue six. Yes. Whenever his face appeared over the computer, and it looked nothing like this. He looked a little bit like the version of the character seen in the promotional comic. Not an exact match, but but uh, in a little moustache. Well, because everyone's doing... And it, and it matched what I had in my head reading Stay Sonic, because what we've got is a scientist who, you know, imagine if Robotnik was a bit less round and was friendly. Finder That's what it is. softer, yeah. But what Richard's done here, and what an inspired little idea this is. Not only has he drawn a, a very slim, obviously, to emphasise the difference, a very slim version of Kinterbor who looks really, really friendly, but... He's given him the Robotnik moustache sticking way off the sides of his face, but also he's done the same thing with his hair. So he's got these two great shocks of ginger hair sticking out to the sides of his head. It's a design I've never seen anywhere else for any other scientist D-type character or, or anyone else in the world. It's ridiculous but it works so well well kintobor was always presented as being ever so slightly bonkers yes in a good way yes but but it, i i don't know that it comes through quite as as strongly in stc as it did in say stay sonic wherever he would clatter through his sentences and not really explain what he was talking about there was a there was a bit of a manic energy to him in stay sonic that uh, that didn't really come across in stc as much but there's still shades of definitely in the art this panel at the bottom of the page where he opens his mouth into this big toothy grin. Yeah. My mission is to rid Planet Mobius of evil forever! Yeah, it really is. That big smile is like, you can see where Robotnik comes from in this man. And, and yes, and I think the design and his silly hair does what we don't have room to do in dialogue, and it establishes him as a nutty professor. And isn't it a wonderfully, um, I'm not sure what the term would be to describe it, coincidence, uh, parallel evolution, mm-hmm. 
But the fact that Elson chooses to give him a pair of pince-nez. <laughs> yes! When that was technically part of the Robotnik game character design, but that we wasn't didn't know part that of yet. Robotnik's Western character design yet, but, but would become more explicit in the, the post-adventure God, years. you're so right. I never noticed that because of how fully I've taken on board that Robotnik's supposed to have those too. But yes, mm. in this comic, uh, if you're wondering what the alternative is, uh, Robotnik simply has deep black eyes without pupils in them, and it's such a... Oh, Richard's drawing of Robotnik coming in. I- I'm going to get there in a minute because I want to go through the art here. I love how Richard's drawing the panels with rounded edges when we are in the flashback shown on yeah. the Omniviewer, and straight edges when we're in the real world with Sonic showing it to his friends. It's such a simple little thing. It, it's subtle and simple, but it's a great touch. There is a heck of a lot of story packed into this um, very effectively. Oh, I mean, it has yeah. to run through the thing in a sort of uh, abridged clip format retelling, but it, nothing is compromised by that. This is the thing. I, I was going to say this at the end as a kind of a conclusion, but we were not wrong as children. We are not looking through rose-tinted glasses. So far, every collaboration between Nigel Kitching and Richard Elson sparkles on every front. The artwork is way better than this comic required, and the script just bounces, especially when you realise that what what Nigel Kitching has to do here is sum up a full story that's been published in various lengthy formats, not very lengthy, but lengthier than we have here. It was 12 pages of prose in Stay Sonic. Nigel has been given the brief of abbreviating it to seven pages of a comic, and what he does is he says... I'll do it in four. Yeah. <laughs> and he throws in his own story to carry it. And that story has stakes, establishes two characters that we might already know but haven't been really introduced to, and introduces two completely new characters, one of whom's original, the Omniviewer, the other one is Dr. Kinterbor, all four of which we're going to move on with throughout the comic, never stop caring about for the whole of the rest of the series. This is an amazing achievement. The Omniviewer is really the first truly significant original character for Sonic the Comic, isn't it? Um, Yes, I think so. I mean, we've had Tufty, or we had what was its name? The Arachbot or something. Yeah. You know, we had original like little animals or original badniks or anything. But this is the first um, truly original character for Sonic the Comic, which again, it's it's not a well that Sonic the Comic would go to uh, that often in comparison to something like. Uh, the Archie Sonic, which yeah. uh, made its original characters like the focal point around which a lot of the stories were revolved, yeah. which Sonic comic would never do. I want to point out how effectively Richard draws drama here. You know, when Sonic's speeding up, about to turn blue, you've got the speedometer zooming in on the speedometer gradually, mm-hmm. you know, starting to spout steam and the explosion, the dramatic Dutch angle as Sonic emerges. And then the Robotnik story again with the drama the, when Kinderboard trips. They both go into silhouette with white eyes, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as though to say, you know, things are about to reverse the electric blue gray as Kinterbor's hand smashes down on the console. And then page six, nothing but pure, beautiful drama with our first full page background smoke everywhere. That brilliantly evil um, smeared face as Robotnik starts to emerge from the shadows and such a good drawing of Robotnik when he finally emerges with his coat all ragged and ripped up and his fists clenched and his face looking terrifying. I always loved the black eyes, but it was never particularly easy to make Robotnik look truly scary or menacing. Because he's such a silly little round man. Yeah, silly little egg man. But Elson got the closest. And it's all in those those eyes and teeth. You know, I mean, I I can definitely remember thinking as as a kid... 
I was perturbed by the idea that Kintabor could just stop existing like that. Yeah. It perturbed me yeah, genuinely. Yeah. So whenever um, they would bring the computer in, uh, it, the Kintabor computer is always like kind of low key my cult obscure fave from the comic <laughs> because it it patched over that strange feeling of emptiness yeah. I had inside with the idea that he could just cease to be. Uh, and then our story ends with um, what is actually a, a paying off again of something Nigel had set up back in oh. issue four, where he established that Robotnik was building his new base yes, in the special zone. That's right. That is the uh, that is the twist that we find here. Once Omniviewer has finished relating the story, he suddenly becomes panicked, tells Sonic and his friends to get away as fast as they can, but Sonic ain't that fast this time, and tendrils of like energy emerge from the Omniviewer and ensnare the four and drag them away inside the screen and they disappear. Then we hear a voice from off-panel saying, Well done, my slave. You have carried out my will as all in the special zone must. And it turns out it is Robotnik. He has enslaved the special zone and the Omniviewer, as we learned in issue four, that he was... he was Well, we never really learned that... We never really understood... And in fact, it would never really play out again the idea that he had enslaved the special zone yeah total control of all things in the special zone that's that didn't really come back up again no and and i would say it's the sort of reach that he seems to actively chase after again later so i I think that's yes perhaps slightly retconned but it's very exciting here isn't it Mm. it certainly it follows on fine from issue four it just wouldn't line up so much with what what came later and he has had the omniviewer cast sonic and his friends somewhere in the future where he can never interfere with his plans again except in the future <laughs> cliffhanger it's so cool um by the way low-key perfect drawing of sonic in the first panel of the last page yes. very interesting pose on him that looks real good but yeah and you have this this caption that says next sonic no more is this our first sonic cliffhanger yeah yeah i think so yeah Wow, what a great Sonic issue that is. I know, it's like, it's not content with just blowing your mind with the origin story. It's got all this other stuff going on yeah. as well. I'm I'm so glad I don't have very much to say about nearly anything in the rest of the comic because <laughs> we have, it was worth diving right into this one. Refuse Review Zone. Um, David Gibbon being honest about Bubsy here. He's yeah. praising the animation in Bubsy and uh, the attempt to make it look like a cartoon. But as for the voices, he says, doesn't seem to enhance the gameplay in any way. Bit of a marketing ploy, if you ask me. Now, I only remember ever ranting Bubsy, but yeah. I do remember enjoying what bits of it that I played, but I know that it's kind of not gone down in history as a particularly well-regarded game. No, I think it's seen I think it's seen as a bit of a joke now, but same, I, yeah. I never played it, but I had a friend, uh, someone I would describe now as my main Mega Drive-owning friend, and uh, mm. he liked Bubsy, I don't remember him ever... Mm having any complaints about it um i mean i I love the apologetic language of the raves and graves where (laughs) raves is a near perfect game and the graves are very easy to lose a life so you're talking pain in the arse hard then (laughs) i think maybe what's happened to bubsy is that he just resembles what we remember as a time of endless poochie games sonic opened the floodgates of Picking an unusual animal yes. and making a video game out of it. So we got a bobcat. And I think people remember this as a time when people were trying to beat Sonic and beat Mario. And presumably, mm. in a business sense, they were. But it's not how I remembered it. At the time, it just felt like 
yeah, people bring out games, and games have these sorts of characters in them. Well, I mean, I mean, the first line in the review here, uh, Bubsy is a game that, according to its publisher Accolade, is, quote marks, oh. set to challenge Sonic. Well, there we go, yeah. And I mean, I, mean, I always remember, like, uh, Sparkster in Rocket Knight Adventures, he yeah. was a possum, you know? Like, why yeah. did he have to be a possum? Why couldn't he just be a, a dude, you know? Yeah. But there was there was this trend of... And didn't they... Wasn't Zool supposed to be an ant or something? Zool? It's unclear whether the people who made Zool ever said he was an ant, but it just became something magazines started saying, and it sort of became almost like folklore that he was an ant. Um, I think whenever anyone asked the actual people at Gremlin, they said, no, he, he's a ninja. <laughs> okay. There's just this trend of weird animals in games. Yeah. I mean, at least they were interesting on, like, Ultimate Soccer, which... Oh, my God. Just, you know... I mean... Raves, lots of options. Graves could be better. Yeah, that's, I mean, sports, in it? This is a Tony Takushi review, and he, he does open it with uh, another great first line, quote, Bit of a landmark, this. Bit of a landmark. Um, <laughs> but he is right to be excited, in a sense. Is he? Even though it's a football game. Is he, though? Because, apparently, this is the first British game to wriggle its way onto the Mega Drive. Now... Oh. Initially, I didn't believe that claim because Lemmings had already been out for two or three years by this time. But then I noticed he says the first official game from Sega. So I guess this came out as being by Sega in a way that previous Mega Drive games from Britain hadn't. Presumably, Rage Software just didn't get to put their logo on the cover, which doesn't seem like a great deal to me, but okay. I mean, it says in the in the facts box, yeah, published by Sega. Ranger X. Yeah, never heard of this one. No. This is a Mega Drive game. It's a robot shooty. Yeah, it's quite unclear from the screenshot, but I looked it up on YouTube, and you are the little pointy robot motorbike in the bottom left corner, but also you are the robot jumping up off the screen at the top. Oh. Right. It's, in the video I saw, you start off as the motorbike, but then the rider of the motorbike will sort of stand up and ride standing up from where he, he can shoot higher up things, which is quite a good concept. Yeah. I don't know what you're doing when you're jumping off like that. Robo shooting over in the other one on this page as well. Robo Alest, which I think entered the charts last issue and we didn't know what it was. Well, again, I looked it up. It has a really cool uh, intro for the time, which is quite a lengthy, you know, animated type thing, although not to a Sonic CD level. This is the Mega CD, of course. Indeed. But I'm not into shoot 'em ups so that's the most I can tell about that. And then Jurassic Park gets a whole page to itself. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've talked about this game several times now at this point for the number of times it's been in the news zone. Well, but that's, yes, and that's because Jurassic, this was the summer of Jurassic Park. This yeah, was the, the biggest thing in the damn world. I know, yeah. It was the, the big, most exciting film, other than Super Mario Brothers, to have come out that summer. And the big, most exciting dinosaur film, other than Super Mario Brothers, <laughs> to have come out that year with the best dinosaur, special effects other than Super Mario Brothers. So, yeah, it's, it was a really landmark... Keep uh, telling yourself that, David. Uh, maybe, maybe you believe it. Listen, that Yoshi puppet is unsurpassed. <laughs> At the uh, fast fast. They had to box. do it. They had to do it practical. They didn't have any computers to work with. They made that in real life. There are real life dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. I don't care about them. They weren't cute. The Fast Facts box has definitely wandered in from a different game, though. Oh, yes. I haven't looked. Because, yeah, the raves. It says the <laughs> raves are mind boggling number of aliens and hot zapping. Hot zapping! And the graves are boy, does that screen get busy. So, I mean, it sounds like it might apply to Robo Alest. So, if we go back to Robo Alest, what are they saying? No, it doesn't be? match up. I thought maybe nope. they swapped them, but no, that's a Robo Alest specific box there, too. Okie doke. Also, explain maths to me, Dave. 
Because how does Bubsy, which gets 94 out of 100 on graphics, yep. 91 out of 100 on sound, and 90 out of play, out of 100 on playability, yep. get an overall score of 88? Listen, if there's any phrase that you can say to me that's going to get you less far in the world, <laughs> it's explain maths to me, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> you you are going to achieve nothing by this. Well, let's achieve something good by jumping over to Kid Chameleon. Kid Chameleon. Kid Chameleon, part two. Written by Michael Cook, art by Brian Williamson, with colours by Steve White and letters by Ellie DeVille. Transformed into the samurai warrior Red Stealth by his new chameleon powers, Casey defeats the enemies on Wildside's first level and is teleported to the second, a dank underground tunnel where he finds the object of his quest, Susie, in the clutches of a towering monster. Oh, this is a... This is a frenetic, whooshy, swishy, explodey sort of a comic, isn't it? I mean, we observed how part one uh, crammed a heck of a lot of story in, and this one is more action-oriented, but it also Mm. accomplishes having him hack his way through the regular, let's call them, enemy sprites, then fight off the boss, then figure out more about his powers to beat the boss... Outrace, I mean, essentially enjoy the cutscene between levels, <laughs> uh, where like the the boss explodes, and uh, the first level is like a it's like a wheat field, and the boss, which is a sort of giant combine harvester, and the enemies are like scarecrows and pterodactyls for some reason. Like there's a theme lost mm-hmm. there. Yes, even though this is not the first level of the actual game, I don't know if this is a later level I didn't get to. Oh, I don't think they're too bothered about that. <laughs> he leaps on the back of the Combine Harvester and the voice gives him the advice never forget, the power is yours chameleon. It's an odd one because I don't think this would really line up with how they would go with it in the rest of the series, but he calls out the word chameleon as he stabs his sword into the Combine Harvester and that gives him a power boost that causes the Combine Harvester to explode. And chameleon is otherwise just as far as I can recall, just the word he uses to switch forms uh, in later parts. Yeah, there was this stood out to me that the fact that he shouts chameleon and it, it appears to blow something up. Which, hmm. ha- having previously established that what's supposed to happen is he turns into someone else. Yeah, I thought that was a bit weird. It's a slightly odd one. Yeah, but the explosion sets the cornfield or the wheat field alight, and he outraces the flames and is uh, sent tumbling onto the telepad that warps him into the. the patented TARDIS noise there. Oh, <laughs> is that what happens? Yes, there we go. I didn't notice the teleport. Pa- I've got to say I was a bit confused by this, you know, mm. this this story here. And I think uh, I think this was why I wasn't really interested in it the first time. I think it, it gets so frenetic that I, I kind of found it tricky to follow in places. Frenetic is a fair word to describe this chapter. I think it's just a consequence of taking the, the story-heavy approach that we saw in part one and yeah. then supplanting story with action. Yeah, and it certainly does that. Oh, there's a lot happening all at once in this one. Yeah. yeah. It's like every page is a different action beat. That's right. And also, what's going on at the same time? And this is odd. We've ended up with a comic here that, rather than being about the sort of cool dude teen guy from the previous issue, it's almost a Shinobi-style comic about this Shogun warrior. Because he's talking like a Shogun warrior. Um, A slightly stereotypical Shogun warrior, in fact. Um, Casey continues to narrate the comic like he did in part one. That's it. The narration captions are from Casey. So it's like he's got this dual personality where... 
he's not in a new costume. He has been almost possessed by this character. It's like when you are playing a, a game with a yeah. previously created character and that character talks in a, a certain set way. Well, as he says it himself in the course of the narration, somehow I know just what to do. The sword in my hand feels like it was made for me. Battle plans swarm yeah. through my head. Fighting moves control my body like I'm a master of the martial arts. I mean, you know what I'd compare it to is Ben 10. Somebody who's transformed into a new form and just instinctively knows how, how it operates. They become someone else. However, I never watched Ben 10, so I was forced instead to compare it to Di Riviera Kid, which uh, the cat turns into in the uh, Gunman of the Apocalypse episode of Red Dwarf, where he, by saying that he has certain fighting skills, he suddenly seems to have those skills, They right? were programmed into that... him, though, because they were playing a video game. Exactly! Yeah, this is a video game too, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Well, fair enough, then. <laughs> Page four and five, I love this. He goes, does danger await me? And then you, Brian Williamson just delivers on... What can only have been written in the script as a page-filling eldritch horror with mouths everywhere, eyes in places you wouldn't necessarily expect, general slitheriness in all directions. It's an amazing picture. Yeah, it's it's hideous. Yeah, absolutely incredible, this this creature that he just comes up in front of and of course there can be no analogue for this in the game like it just doesn't have that kind of scope I mean it's not a million miles removed from the sort of bizarre alien monster that you might fight at the end of a Contra or something you know like something that would just be there you know how games used to be sometimes monsters yeah absolutely I would certainly expect to see something like this filling the screen at the end of say um, R-Type or something and I like then when he sees the monster he just uh, raises a hand and says peace Red Stealth has no quarrel with Fire Breath and he's it does seem willing to just let him go you know they're not going to fight until it turns out Susie's in his hand my only concern there being that it's not breathing fire so I don't know why he thinks it has fire breath there is that yeah also Susie's uh, speech bubble goes lowercase here oh gosh yeah I don't know what that's about yeah that's very ultimate comics isn't it it is yeah so Susie is speaking and and that's consistent in the previous panel as well she speaks in in lowercase not consistent with the previous issue no and we'll see if it carries I don't remember if it like when I saw it here I was like oh yeah I remember this this is weird Mm -hmm. I remember this being weird but i don't remember if it carries on through the rest of the serial so we'll find out well it's not a mistake ellie deville knows what she's doing so that's oh a, yeah that's a choice someone made and whether well, yeah we'll see next issue what happens yeah. so a frenetic chapter but one that continues the fast pace and dense storytelling of this so far so uh, it's uh, definitely living up to my memories of it as one of my favorites news zone. oh it's a big one it's a big one in the news zone this week dave oh look at him on the left of the double page spread Filling the page from top to bottom is Metal Sonic. There and he it's is. Our first look at Metal Sonic. It's the uh, it's the artwork from the, you know the Japanese cover of the game and the British cover of the game, although it was zoomed in a lot more for hours. We'd been introduced to Amy and the general idea of Sonic CD back in issue five, and this is where we learn a little bit more about the game. We get the level listing, all the zones and everything, and when it'll we get release date and price and everything. But what we get is this picture of Metal Sonic, and yeah. just. I mean, isn't this basically the coolest thing you'd ever seen? <gasps> Language! <laughs> isn't it? Uh, I mean, it seems to have been art made with computers. So, yes. Yes! In 1993, yes. Yes, yes it was. As with the Sonic and Amy before, this, I think, has been photographed from the same pamphlet or press release or magazine that they found it in because they've 
rather clumsily cut around it mm. and they've ended up cropping out the start of the fire coming out yeah. of his jet so it looks like it's coming out of his arm instead but much uh, better picture overall than yes than the one we saw of Amy they had a second person holding it flat for them there, I think. <laughs> yeah but Sonic CD and Metal Sonic will come to be huge influences on Sonic the comic within the next year. Yeah. In the write-up here, they didn't have very much info about... I know exactly Metal the bit Sonic. Yeah, go on. The bit where they just start listing chips in the Mega Drive. Um, yeah. Metal Sonic is just a plain ordinary robot with special processing chips like the good old 68,000 used in the Mega Drive and the special DSP that will be in Virtua Racing for the Mega Drive previously mentioned on this podcast. Now that does sound like something that could have reasonably been in a Sega... In the press release. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Unless they needed to fill space, I suppose that is a thing. It just made that picture of Cosmic Spacehead a bit bigger. And yeah, well, and pushed everything up. Did you ever play Cosmic Space? This, this is the next thing. Yes, Cosmic Spacehead is the next new story. I never played it. That I can recall, anyway. I mean, I, I recognised the art when I saw it. But... Cosmic Spacehead is a wonderful thing. It's um, Is it good? Did it turn out to be good? It has the bearing of a not good game. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's very basic. The platforming can be frustrating, maybe even slightly broken. But its whole character and what it's trying to be meant that I loved it dearly. And uh, every time I lent it to people, uh, which happened twice with my Mega Drive owning friend I previously mentioned, and with my cousin, both of them in, in a swap for Sonic and Knuckles, in fact, they came back with them having played it more than I ever did. And I loved it. Um, my friend said, I don't know why you don't play this more, Dave. It's great. Oh, right. Okay. So yeah. what it was, was it was Codemasters brought out a random little weird game called Linus Spacehead for the NES. And it was sort of a weird version of the idea of a point-and-click adventure, but that can run on a NES. So it was all like a 2D platformer-looking thing. Oh, okay. About this guy you see here just hopping about and collecting sweets. And for some reason... When they decided to expand it for 16-bit and bring it out on Mega Drive and Amiga, they went full point-and-click adventure with it. Well, is that what this was? It was a point-and-click adventure. Yep, and, it, and, it, and you can see the subtle really? hint of that because they say... You can you where is it? Ah, commands such as look, examine, and give can be used. Now, see, I was so confused by that because it's described, and I quote, as a yep. mix of adventure and arcade action. So whenever it got to the point, yeah, when it said like commands such as look and give can be used, and I'm like, oh, well, uh, like, do you also push buttons and turn on the power switch? Of course <laughs> you can, like, look at things. Oh, I see. <laughs> so you thought it just meant that you can look at this game in order to play it? Was, it. it was just like the most mundane description of mundane actions that you wouldn't normally put as a yeah. as a write-up of key features of a game um, you would just say it's a point-and-click adventure is what you'd say yeah they did not say well that. and if maybe they were trying to get across to Mega Drive owners what a point-and-click adventure is but this sure. one did have a, a, a difference it was a a good point-and-click adventure of the sort that you'd be happy to see on PC or Amiga today mm. like it's fine it's just a fun little point and click cartoon romp but when you want to move between certain screens it will cut to a platform game and oh, you right okay that's how you get from one place to the next uh, that's the arcade action that they're talking unfortunately about. the platform mm. game sections were very i don't know whether it was simply made or shoddily made but they were mm. tremendously difficult and you 
just always died on the way to the next screen and it became very frustrating and that that frankly was the reason i never got very far in it but the actual point and click adventure part wonderful time i i can just sometimes if i want to feel really happy i will put the music on to the mega drive version because it's very simple music but it's just one of those teleportation devices that exist in life where you can put this thing on that because it wasn't that great you never thought to you know tape it and walk around listening to it or anything like that so it just takes you to the specific time and place where you were playing this game But yeah, it's a good one, and I really did get into it. I recommend it! Well, well, we're told to watch out for a full review coming soon, so we'll see if they ever do that and what they say about it. If they actually explain what the game was. (laughs) (laughs) Next, they bring up Jurassic Park in various forms. They somehow wring three paragraphs out of the fact that Jurassic Park's going to be on Game Gear and Mega CD, and that's it, like. And they had so much more to say. I mean, the Mega CD version appears to be a completely unique Myst-style game that I've not seen on any other system. The multi-system Jurassic Park game was... uh, a sort of a, a top-down affair, sometimes with 3D shooter, you know, FPS sections. This is not that. This is a this is a mist where you're exploring Jurassic Park. Odd, fascinating. I've never seen it anywhere else, but not really mentioned here. Then we've got. Uh, could this be more right out of the nineties? Could, <laughs> could that sentence have been more right out of the nineties? <laughs> Very apt. Echo joins Baywatch. Those guys and girls are pretty impressive. But if your idea of water sports is a little more modest, don't be pressurized into something you can't do. Push yourself by all means, but play it safe. They, basically, yes. um, the Royal Life Saving Society UK and the English School Swimming Association teamed up and got a couple of Baywatch stars to swim around with a dolphin for a special 20-minute video that, and I quote, covers all aspects of water safety and swimming. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess Sega were also involved because it was marketed as being Echo the Dolphin. <laughs> so, Chris, this is on YouTube and you can watch it. And I have... I was, you know, I didn't have time to go and look it up, but I would have been surprised if I had typed it in and it it's had not. It's absolutely wonderful. It stars David Hasselhoff. Hi, I'm David Hasselhoff from the TV series Baywatch, and I'm here to tell you some very exciting news. I am looking for members in the UK and I want you to be on the team. You don't need big muscles. You don't need to be a big hero. Everyone has lifeguard potential. You in? Two other people from Baywatch. Well, I remember Nicole Egger. Yep. Fezhead and the skull Fez thing. Fezhead's in it. Yep. Oh, Fezhead and the skull. That's a full Sega then. Quite comically represented by something I don't remember from the big Fezhead advert that was referenced the other issue, but there's various shots of that actor in that set and with that costume on but with a big, his big microphone held right over his face, and it might not even be the same actor, frankly, held so close over his face that you can't see what his mouth is doing, and he's just, like, nodding his head so they can dub over anything they want. But I think it's, the, I think it's at least the right actor doing the voiceover. And, of course, also featuring in this video as a presenter, unwitting and unaware friend of the comic, Mr. Chris Evans features oh, quite highly in this video. <laughs> Filmed at that one event, no doubt. <laughs> Don't let this be you. Don't go it alone. Always swim with friends, family, or somewhere you'll be supervised. Preferably by lifeguards. And there's, uh, it stars a boy named Binky, 
who uh, dreams of being a lifeguard and, and tries, but he doesn't have the necessary training. And uh, David Hasselhoff talks to camera, and he he's not stock footage. He is in this. I know, yeah, I figured that, yeah, it says the video, which will also star David Hasselhoff. Yeah, and he talks to camera, and he says things like, and I wrote this down, this is my favorite line, you know, I like to think, you know, of, a like to think of a lifeguard as the closest a human can get to being a dolphin. Wow. They have a dolphin swimming around. No stars painted on its nose. It's just a dolphin. Um, and uh, it's really quite wonderful. Uh, they, <laughs> The two lifeguard characters from Baywatch, they keep explaining to you what drowning is. And they do it in the simplest terms. They keep saying things like, when you have too much water and you stop being able to breathe, that's what drowning is. And it happens from lack of breath. <laughs> we all need air to breathe and water stops us from breathing. The most important thing to know about the water is it can stop you from breathing, and that's what drowning is. The most important thing for a lifeguard to learn is why the water is dangerous. Now it's dangerous because it stops you from breathing, and that's what drowning is. Are they playing their Baywatch characters, or is it, Hello, I'm Nicole Eggert, and I'm David Hasselhoff. You may know us from such TV series. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the latter. I think, yeah, I don't think they say their characters. But then I never watched Baywatch, so they could have said either name, and I wouldn't have noticed the difference. You wouldn't have known. <laughs> Hi, I'm Nicole Eggert. And I'm David Charvet from the TV series Baywatch. And we're going to be your personal trainers as you start your journey to become a Baywatch UK rookie lifeguard but they don't they, they make no bones about it. they're not in a scene together there's not a sketch they are just like hi kids we're here to tell you about water safety don't drown and then the last bit of news on here is that ea have introduced um a new four-way play controller adapter yeah. which i thought was odd that was getting so much space given that the review zone talked about the fact that the multi-tap already exists. exactly and the multi-tap I didn't have any of these, but but you did. As I understand it, the multi-tap was never displaced from its throne as the thing you use if you want to do this, right? Because, yeah, I mean, it's all same bloody thing. Like, so... Yeah. It's like, okay, EA have done the same thing. Super. Yeah. You know, so why have you given it the entire sidebar on the news page? Yes, and the, there could be an answer, but it isn't mentioned here. If it is that certain EA games, which they mention a few sports games... Yeah, maybe like only work with it or something exactly but it doesn't say so if that's the case it's like you wouldn't advertise that fact if it was true like we've had a couple of these adverts before it's uh, another Roy of the Rovers one it's another Sabutio one I feel like but, we'd uh, see quite a few Roy of the Rovers and Sabutio ones to my memory uh, not mine they were completely wiped from my memory because they resemble football in some way well this is true but you know they were in Sonic the Comic <laughs> but then we have the first reservation coupon for Ooh. Sonic the Comic Fast and furious, beat the rush, why run around frantically searching for that elusive copy? Be a smart dude and reserve your fortnightly issue of the only true blue Sonic the Comic. And you, what you're supposed to do here is cut out this thing and, and it says, To my news agent, please reserve stroke deliver, delete as appropriate, a Sega-sational issue of Sonic the Comic every fortnight, name, address and signature to be signed by a parent or guardian if under 16. And you didn't need that. You just went and asked. No, you just went to your news agents and asked. You didn't need to cut the comic up. I did. I got my copy reserved at my news agents. Without cutting a comic up, I hope. Without cutting a comic up, of course. And then lastly, there's just an advert for the existence of 2000 AD. Well, there you go. Which is pretty much the same comic as this, but about slightly different things. <laughs> but about guns yeah. and the future. Guns and the future. Well, you say that, we turn the page. 
Streets of Rage. Oh, but it's only guns, not the future. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> I think it is, isn't it meant to be, what, is it like 10 minutes into the future or something? Oh, they did use that, didn't they, yeah. last issue? Yeah, fair enough. Then, yeah. <laughs> Streets of Rage. Written by Mark Miller, art by Peter Richardson, letters by Tom Frame, we've got part two of Streets of Rage, in which... Max and Blaze hit the streets, taking out a gang of thugs who are menacing small businesses for protection money. Next, the pair crash a drug lab belonging to Hawk and use weapons stolen from the gang to blow it sky high. And all of this in Sonic the Hedgehog the comic. I know, right? <laughs> After we've just been introduced to Johnny Lightfoot, the sweet little rabbit. Um, furious at the loss of the lab and eager for revenge against his old enemy Max, Hawk calls in Ninja Assassins. Wow, when you spell it out like that, this comic has everything an 11-year-old boy could possibly <laughs> want, know. doesn't it? Uh, well, you, uh, maybe not the drugs. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, we are... It, uh, I mean... It, and it's only going to get wilder from Is here, it? honestly. To my memory, yeah, things only get... You know, they haven't almost said any swears yet, and that's still to come. I know that. I mean, I was I was literally Little Lord Christopher Robin at this age, so I just didn't read this back then. Um, too, too rude for you. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it does feel like it belongs in a different comic. It genuinely does. And that's its strength, right? That's what's so exciting about it. Yeah, I mean, it. it's like, it's good. Yeah. I think it probably... It, and indeed Shinobi, yeah. um, earned their reps as the best of the other ones, the ones that got the most representation, the ones that had three series each plus a poster mag each, yeah. because they didn't quite fit the vibe of the rest of the comic, you know? I mean, the, this is one here where, you know, we've got thugs blowing up Ken's corner shop. They've got him on the ground crying and begging for his life as he because he's six months behind on his protection. You yeah. Know? And then... And then the battle van shows up and they're like, where'd the van come from? And one guy goes, maybe it's the cops. Maybe somebody called the cops. And it's like, don't be stupid. We pay the cops plenty to keep out of our way. It's like, jeez. I could not understand any of these concepts when this comic originally came out. Protection. Protection money. Didn't get that. Paying the cops. I'd heard about drugs. But that was from school telling you they were bad. I didn't know it had anything to do with crime, apart from the crime of Of doing drugs. drugs. Like, I didn't know there would be gangs involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you get this bit like where, where the gang leader tells the gang member Bananas to blow up the van with the bazooka, but just as he pulls the trigger, he's shot dead between the eyes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it's like the guy turns to yell at him, for crying out loud, you almost... He's been taken out! And, I mean, it's you can there's a, there's a, a bloody entry wound in the middle of his forehead. Yeah. Oof. Oof. And then Max and Blaze turn up beat the F out of them and uh, and steal the bazooka. And then they go to this, this drug lab. They call this the safe house. For the past five years, drugs have been processed and packaged here 24 hours a day. Everybody knows about it, even the cops. But nobody dared do anything. Until tonight. Pfft, through the wall they come. Comes this giant car fitted up with claws and stuff. Yeah. I, I kind of want to make fun of it for how willfully edgy it's trying to be. If this was genuinely trying to be like a serious comic story about this sort of thing, it would be a different story. You know, this is the sort of level of quote-unquote maturity that would represent what we would think of now as a 13-year-old boy's idea of maturity. But that was the friggin' audience. This comic knew 
exactly what it was doing. It's a strange fit for the comic, and yet somehow it manages to work in and amongst everything else that's going on. It's incredibly over-the-top in a gritty, noiry, super unreal sort of way, yeah. but it seems to know exactly the audience that it's going for, and it clearly hit with them. Yeah, It almost annoys me to admit that, much as I'd like to be saying otherwise, I'm still genuinely enjoying it, even reading it now. Because, I mean, I remember Streets of Rage was far from my favourite whenever I read the comic originally, perhaps because uh -huh. it was so weirdly different in tone and, uh, and subject matter. But looking back on it now and understanding a bit more what was being gone for and, and what it was genuinely succeeding at trying to do, I, I really yep. am enjoying rereading it. As a, as a small boy, I was uh, our house was not the sort of place where... For instance, we never watched the Terminator films or anything. No, same, or anything same, like same, that. same. Absolutely, we weren't yeah. allowed to watch all that stuff. There's a, that age rating on the video box was there for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we strictly went with that, and also just me myself, I wasn't interested in that because I wasn't. It, my parents weren't strict or anything. It wasn't like a strict. You will yeah, yeah, do yeah. this. You will not do this. But as a younger kid, I was sort of annoyed by kids who were like, "Oh yeah, I've seen all the Nightmare on Elm Streets," and I'm like, "Well, you shouldn't have." Not for kids. <laughs> Stop letting kids watch things like that. But it was because I was being all stuck up about it and i thought like <laughs> you and your gross tastes you were one of those teenagers who thought oh teenagers <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah pretty much at the time i think i would have associated this comic with that sort of kid and i didn't want to be that sort of kid so i didn't read it really i could see that yeah i don't think i went that far but um it was an oddity i, I love i mean this scene at the end here you know where where hawk turns up at the um Oh, and there's a bird flying by, so maybe it wasn't a metaphorical hawk. Well, but this could be another metaphorical hawk. I mean, it's circling well, I mean, the... I mean, it could uh... just be a passing bird. It might not be his pet hawk that's come with him. We'll have to keep an eye out for hawks in all subsequent issues. Absolutely. I mean, the way that it's placed here is that, like... You know, it cuts to sort of the sky far above. Essentially, mm. the hawk acts as a scene transition. Yes, exactly what I was going to say. Yes, if this was a, a film, it wouldn't be a real bird so much as it would be like a... And it would fly across the screen and the scene would wipe with it. <laughs> yes. But here it's... um. It, so, uh, readers, if you're not seeing this in front of you, there's... Uh, imagine that the whole top half of the page is one big panel, but it has an inset panel in what is basically the, the bottom right quarter of that big panel. And so what that... Gives you is the left hand side to use as a real panel and then a bit of extra space up at the top and in that space is where this bird and it may or may not be a hawk uh, i think it is based on the shape of the beak yeah. has been placed so it could just be a narrative device or it could be a literal hawk or indeed both we will continue to try and unpack the mystery of the metaphorical hawk as we go on hawk watch we'll spot yes. them every every issue for you i mean the, the scene is an aerial shot of the burning drug lab and it turns out that that hawk the uh, the crime boss we met in the previous issue who has had previous dealings with max owned this lab this is a very tried and true approach to villainy but uh, you know we've got possibly the one guy who yeah. managed to survive the explosion of the lab please mr hawk though there was nothing we could do they just burst in and like nuked the place i was lucky to get out alive you needn't have bothered yeah he just caps him fully off panel now of course well of course i mean but that's why it's as effective as it is if it was shot in a film that's how they would shoot the shot in a film yes too. and what we've got here is this is Mark Miller writing for Mark Miller, and it, somehow it appears in this Sonic comic. Okay, 
I want to establish that I'm not doing the thing which I kind of find annoying, where people are like, whoa, this isn't something for kids? Because uh, no, uh, yeah, yeah. all things for kids have always been made by adults trying to make something good. But I am just kind of in awe of how trusted we were with this material back then. Right? I mean, there's there was a bit of blood and sword play in the barbarian sure. stuff but it's yeah. like that was just swords and that you know and you know, shinobi was the same thing it was you know f- it was fantastical ninja violence you know these, they, they were fantasy violence this is just some poor getting capped in the middle of the street yeah this is a crime boss executing another criminal for his failure to prevent his drug lab from being blown up <laughs> by cops who quit the force due to corruption using a gun and within that panel we're almost seeing through his eyes or over his shoulder as it happens yeah yeah he's shooting into camera yeah or out of camera yeah it's great what a cool this is cool this is 90s cool you could read this comic with your sunglasses on because that is who you are if you are reading this comic a cool dude (laughs) you know there's there's a bit of me somewhere buried in the pit of me would like to be more critical of it but i feel like a lot of that is just informed by what i would know mark miller would go on to do i thought you were gonna say there's a part of you deep down that wants to be a cool dude but instead here we are making a sonic podcast (laughs) don't draw attention to it (laughs) oh god go on to the q zone This is a Q-Zone special, and therefore two full pages of stuff we don't need to say almost anything about. It's uh, it's Dave Gibbon doing a complete guide to um, Tiny Toon Adventures on the Mega Drive, which I don't believe I ever played. I never did, but what we have again is a solution to a platform game. The sort of game explicitly designed to just sort of happen and very difficult to find anything to need to print a solution about but he manages to draw out two pages of it and all of well i mean what better proof do you need than the uh, the solution quote unquote to stage one which just says just run left to right <laughs> wonder boy in demon world part seven usual creative team written by mark isles art by boyan dukak and letters by steve potter fighting to keep control of his demonically infected body shion faces off against grandmaman in the final battle uses his magic to put an end to the demon lord. Grandman's death breaks the spell and Shion begins reverting to normal, but to get the captured population of Monster World back home, he's still going to have to fight his way back out of Demon World. So, I've been wondering about why the name Grimerman seems pluralized. You'd expect Grimerman, wouldn't you? No, not really. I'm going to be honest you with don't you, think Dave. I think this is a you problem. <laughs> Do you think it is? <laughs> I t- I put it down to like one of the ordinary peculiarities you get when your entertainment's in Japanese originally. Um, so like Doctor Eggmen, wouldn't that be weird? Well, yeah, but that's like having man in a normal surname. He's he's, he's not John Grimerman, and even if he was, you'd still pronounce it Min. <laughs> I mean, I feel like he kind of is John Grimerman. In this, in this. <laughs> no, he's Grimerman the Demon Lord. When we when we first started hearing the name, I have never been able to process Eggman. To me, he was always Doctor Eggman. Eggman. <laughs> yep, yeah, well. Doctor Egg, Doctor Ivo, maybe Eggman. But um, I googled it thinking okay so it'll be japanese and stuff he was created for this right he was created for this and there doesn't appear to be anything in the games called grime and then i am pretty sure that the design is lifted from something in the games because Uh um that oh yeah we found that artwork that piece of artwork that we looked at in the very first issue that trailed the coming of the strip in the second issue Mm. had grimeman's had what we would come to recognize as grimeman's head in the background so i think they have recycled the design from something i don't know what but at least when you google grimeman you only get links to stc stuff so so the name at least was made up for this and i realize what that means it means his name was made up by mark isles 
And two episodes ago, when we hit the shame in, I wondered what else oh, we God. might be missing. No, you better it's... not be about to hit me with something that's going to make me furious again. It's just Grim Omen, isn't it? Oh, son of a... Oh, mother of... <laughs> oh, I am away! That's it! It's over! <laughs> He's gone. He's left the room. <laughs> I warned you. <laughs> so maybe all this time we should have been saying Grimoman. Should we have been calling him Grimoman? Grimoman. 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 No, but that would. Have, I mean, Grimoman. It feels like that should have two M's, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Grimoman. Yeah, but it's no because then it wouldn't be Grimoman. But oh, but then he changed the shame in. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, grim man. Grim, grim, grim moment. Look at this. Grim moment. Look at this jaunty picture of. You couldn't, you couldn't have figured this out in part one. <laughs> seven parts of this sh- making us look this like. This is the oh. thing. We've recorded these ahead of release of even episode one. So, like, if any of you have been yelling at us all the way through, this is. Uh, I'm sorry, but we haven't been able to respond until now, and I'm not splicing it in. I want to drag it out. I want you to suffer. <laughs> so anyway. Grim, grim omen? Look at this jaunty picture of him on page two, anyway. This pose he's doing where he's like, he's up on one knee, he's got his fist out, he's, got, he's waggling one hand, he's sort of put all his weight on one it's, side. Very interesting uh, <laughs> pose. rubbish, isn't it, really? Like, <laughs> I mean, th- uh, this is the final fight. This is the showdown, and it is rubbish. Not a not a fan of Wonder Boy, then, Chris. I've, I've been getting no, this it's not specific- impression. No, Wonder Boy has been Wonder Boy has been a little getting a little better the last issue or two. Uh-huh. As we transitioned out of the wacky wayside adventures that were just obstacles put in his path of getting to the point of the story yeah. in in the first half. But now that he's here for the final fight, it's cluttered, crowded layouts with oversized sound effects that really. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. They really crowd out the uh, the artwork. And the whole thing ends on Looney Tunes rules. He punches <laughs> him up in the air and he falls back down and he hits the ground and leaves a big cartoon silhouette of himself in the ground. And it's like, oh, well, he lived that. And then I turn the page and that and he's dead. Like I'm, I, you've you've just <laughs> delivered me Looney Tunes rules and now I'm 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 asked to believe that Looney Tunes rules genuinely killed the Demon Lord. Well, well, they do justify it because he does a let magic appear yeah, and spell magic, me power. But, yeah, sure. Yeah, and the, the yeah. So he's. The the implication is he's so strong that he punched him essentially into orbit and then he comes down from just under the point of orbit enters terminal velocity and smashes into the ground absolutely no problem with that whatsoever totally fine uh-huh. with that it's the cartoon silhouette that he leaves in the ground <laughs> it's very precise it follows it follows Coyote. each spike it's, on the side of his face doesn't yeah. it yeah overreaction for the sake of comedy aside it, it's bad like <laughs> it's a comedic beat that when you turn the page you're suddenly asked to accept wasn't comedy and has actually killed him see i think if i'm going I, I didn't really mind this but i think if i'm going to point out something it's the fact that the death of the demon lord not only takes place with him smashing a tunnel through the ground but but with the word kablat <laughs> Yes, cartoons. It's Looney Tunes, though. And, I mean, also, to be completely fair, art that really doesn't convey any sense of impact or or force behind it. You know, it feels like the impact is missing. There is a problem with the way that the fall is um, shown. Yeah, he he kind of... The way that he's kind of falling and putting his arm down, it looks as if he's just going to fall a short way. And then for him to 
explode through the ground with a, a force capable of shattering rock and killing the demon lord. Like they put the kerblat sound on as if we were witnessing the impact, but we're really witnessing the aftermath of the impact. We, we see the, the actual hole. cutting out of the hole. We don't see yeah. the moment of impact. And it's very hard to ask me to believe that that's killed him uh, or, or to even draw my own conclusion that he's been killed until I'm simply told that by Cheyenne on the next page. Yes, and I think the, the answer here would have been instead of the hole up in the air down and down through the, the floor thing, the answer would be either to punch him simply off into space yeah, or to punch him, say, into a wall of solid rock so he smashes through a mountain. Say. Or maybe do exactly the same thing that he's done to every other enemy that he's actually killed in the course of the comic with the sword magic huh yeah I mean now that you know there's not much else to report honestly the fight takes the form of, of this single punch we, the previous chapter ended with Shion in I can't say Grimoman it's not going to come out right in his clutches <laughs> and then he, he uses a thunder spell to burn his wings off and then we just spend a whole page of, of, of him fighting his own demon arm as his demon arm attacks him and the demon lord just as you say sitting in this strange little pose what have you done to my lovely wings and she'll just totally ignoring him completely as he <laughs> as he talks to the audience about the fact he's taken over his well we've already established that he's a, a a difficult protagonist to support yes uh well then so anyway graham the the demon lord's death <laughs> breaks the spell. He starts reverting to normal. So do all the other prisoners chained to the walls that we saw last issue. Yes, because they were turning into they demons turning into the same way Cheyenne is. And then uh, some of the demon guards descend down into the pit castle, wanting to know where he is. Yes, and one of them comes down and says, where's the demon lord? What have you done to Grimmoman? It's not and, easy, uh, is it? And Cheyenne says, I killed the lowlife son of a next issue across the dimensions. <laughs> Very strange to have the Looney Tunes page... And then to have a son of a dot 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 uh, dropped on. I it. mean, we've talked about how disconnected some Mark Isle scripts have felt before, but more than most. Fundamentally, though, I don't mind someone having fun, and I think he's having fun. No, I don't know. I I I quite like it when there's the sense that the people making the thing are being silly, and there is certainly that going on. And then uh, we're hit with a bombshell at the end. Next issue. This hasn't finished yet. I know. Son of a. We've got a few uh, interesting yes, letters. Quite a jammed letters page this issue. Yeah, just because we're eight issues in, Speedlines is the letters page in which uh, Megadroid, the fake editor of the comic type character, replies to people's letters, and it has fan art on it as well. In fact, we've got a nice bit of fan art here of Amy Rose from a Kareen McQuaid of Glasgow, Master System owner. Somebody who, like us, had no access to to reference material while drawing her. Well, quite right, but she's done it right. Yeah, she did. Well, she downward curving spines. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to give her full points for that, and she hasn't given Amy the the fully sticky uppy uh, hair there. So yeah, she and in fact she's actually given her small eyes. So I actually think she might like. Oh no, I was going to say she might have the game, but it's not out yet, is Good it? Have it yeah. So no. perhaps she's just got a screenshot because that kind of looks how Amy looked in the actual sprite. What's in the letters then? Let's see. Uh, Carl Roberts from Barnsley wants to know if they can only make comic strips out of Sega games mm. uh, suggesting James Pond and Road Rash if they have access to electronic arts titles. And Megadroid says no, they're not restricted. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? He actually confirms here that 
legally speaking, they're not restricted to only make strips out of Sega's in-house games. So I figure they'd still have to clear it, though. Yeah, and, and it would be more difficult, presumably, because they'd have to clear it with multiple studios. Did they ever make anything by something that wasn't a... This is my question. I don't yeah. think so. So Well, no, no. Uh, Rocket Knight was a Konami game, so there was at least that. Maybe there were some others, I don't know, but that one was from Konami. So I'm eternally disappointed we never got the Zool comic, I imagined, a couple of issues ago, but which STZ never even slightly hinted at. I just think it would have been nice. What else have we got? Rebel with a cause. Dear STC, says James Beaton of Sea Houses, Northumberland. Haven't heard of Sea Houses. Sounds nice. Mega Drive owner. My dad says your comic costs too much and I'm not to buy it, but I still do. Cool. You rebel, Jim. Yeah. Hope your dad now realises STC is excellent value for money. A sentiment shared by <laughs> Andrew Shortland of Elkston, Derbyshire. How does it feel to be the world's coolest host? Your reviews are extremely accurate. Your comic knocks the pants off those DC comics and it's cheaper. Can't wait till the next issue. And he also asks for a Street Fighter 2 strip. He does and he sort of gets snubbed, doesn't he? Yeah, he kind of gets like, as for Street Fighter, says Megadroid, what do you think of Streets of Rage? And I'm like, listen, they've got street <laughs> yeah. in the title, Megadroid. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> and I guess they fight. Um, and then we've got a letter here that says... Dear Sonic, everyone is saying you've got an attitude. What attitude? Don't you get bored with all those Badniks and Tails' eternal whimperings? What I'm saying is that you need a break. Why don't you come to the new pleasure park I'm building? It's called Eggton Towers, and it's great! You'll be looked after by my greatest slave, I mean workers, and it'll be very relaxing. Dr. Kinterbore? Ah. Oh. Death Egg, Space, Rotten Egg Winner. P.S. Bring that snivelling, sorry, charming friend of yours, Miles Prower, with you. Well, nice try, Richard Burton. <laughs> well, uh, what you, wait, hang on, what's your, what are you taking issue on with the fiction of this letter? <laughs> do you, oh, so do you think that in the fiction he's pretending to be Dr. Kinterbor. He's It's a letter from, yes, it's Got Dr. It. Robotnik pretending to be someone to lure Sonic to his right. theme Right, I thought park. they just sort of wrote Robotnik wrong. But he's, like, dead. It's not a fool, Sonic. Well, that's what Megadroid says. Nice try, Walrus Chops, but you ain't fooling no one, especially Sonic. Oh, uh, okay. Context clues, David. <laughs> well, I was so fizzing with, uh, with anger over the... Well, not anger, but I was fizzing with... What was I fizzing with? I, I was so fizzing with pedantry that, uh... <laughs> 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 that I, uh, I guess I didn't read the reply. Though if that park of yours is really open, there's a few humes I'd like to send along. Hey. <laughs> oh, Megadroid. Well, and I'm happy to be one of them. I need to be sent to the park myself now. Sorry, Megadroid. I mean, I do wonder, again, if it is uh, if it is a fake letter or if it's just, you know, somebody's... Oh, we think it's real. Do you think Dr. Robotnik well, wrote I, that I one? Could, I could absolutely... Just remembering some of the stuff that used to get posted in comics like the Transformers, you know. Because the letters in the Transformers comic, for instance, were answered by Transformers, the letters would play along with the fiction of that and, and act that they would, you know, they would, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw Grimlock and he said he could beat you up or, you know, or I'll send Metroplex around to step on your house if you don't print my letter <laughs> and stuff like oh, that. Oh, that's nice. Know? So I can absolutely believe some some kid would, would send a letter pretending that they had sent a letter from Dr. Robotnik. And then, you know, I believe that um, maybe the STC crew would have attached the phony address. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, hopefully if that's the case, then they got a Sonic Water game. Because as we all know, the Death Egg fell out of orbit, so there's no way it could have been sent from the Death Egg in space. Obviously. True. <laughs> <laughs> Not to fizz with pedantry or anything, but true. No, I mean, no, no. <laughs> we are, I mean, we've made it through, well, 
That's not like it's a chore. No, it's a pleasure. We find ourselves having unfortunately finished reading this great episode of Sonic the Comic. And uh, we are warned that next issue, Robotnik wins! Shock! Evil Doctor takes over Mobius! Horror! Where's Sonic? Read the full stunning story in the next sensational STC. Extra, Wonder Boy the Big Finish, and Streets of Rage, Kid Chameleon, and lots more in Sonic the Comic number 9. You can't afford to miss it at 95p. And we're told all of this specifically about Robotnik winning with, in the background, the giant clip art Robotnik that was just handed out to people who wanted to print Sonic things, I suppose. Just flipping well done to mm. Richard Burton and Deborah Tate and Claire Gilmore and Steve McManus and Chris Power and all of the creative humes who made this one. This is a good issue. I'm happy about it. It is a good issue. Yeah, we're on the first peak of the roller coaster. Yes. That is Sonic the Comic. You know, we're going to come down. Yeah. Crashing down in the next issue or two. Way! As everything gets turned on its head. And then we take a bit of a chug mm. over the next 10 or so issues to get back up to the next big peak after it's that. It's a, a bizarre design of a roller coaster where the initial bit where you're being chain pulled up the first ramp to get ready, for some reason they do another one of them after the first drop. Yeah, immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's because, I, I suspect, honestly, it's because nobody expected Richard and Nigel to happen. That was just yeah, such a wonderful pairing up of creatives that it just changed where the comic would go and what it would be more or less forever, except they weren't ready for it and they did have to get out the banked stories first. Yeah, I mean, because we've got another issue or two of the Kitching Elson Dream Team to take us through this new establishment of status quo that we'll be talking more about next issue. But after that, we kind of descend back down into the types of stories that we've been seeing for the first five, six issues, many of which were quite likely inventory stories that were written before this change in the status quo happened and they're just kind of square peg round hold it. And it'll take us a little while before Kitching and Elson come back to push the book fully through the gateway into its fully evolved form they kind of become the showrunners in a sense don't they? yes yes they, they, that's it yeah you know yes it's funny because when you see that the heights of storytelling maturity that some of the other strips are shooting for streets of rage kate chameleon shinobi it's funny how the sonic story could have almost become an afterthought if, if yeah. kitching and elson hadn't come along to really push it up so that it stood shoulder to shoulder and, and surpassed many of the uh, supporting strips yes because i was such a sonic fan i never really thought about it before but in these early issues you can certainly argue or not you know you just point at it and go look that the sonic bit is really only there to sell the paper mm, yeah and the rest is the real stuff they cared about making but then i guess that just left a big hole wide open for nigel to step in and go well how about we make this good yeah what if we did care and we'll find out about how they cared <laughs> next time <laughs> do you want to follow us on social media in the interim i am at chris mcfeely on twitter and also on youtube and if you want to follow us on social media on the internet i am at demon tomato dave one word on twitter and youtube and twitch and here and there our opening theme tune is synchronized by sonic the comic the band but this is sonic the comic the podcast and we will see you next issue